before we talk about your journey, I, I kind of want to talk about detox protocols because that's something sure. that you've been working on because what we're realizing yeah. is that there's most likely shedding, there's uh, people vaccine mm -hmm. injured, and right. a lot of people were duped into this and they're looking for options on how to detox. And then you have a lot of people mm -hmm. that weren't duped into this that are hanging out with people right. that were duped into this that have <laughs> shedding. So it seems to be a big concern. Tell us a little bit about sure. how the detox protocols Thank work. You. Yeah, well, just to clarify real quick, I'm a physician assistant. I never want to take a title uh, that is not truly mine. So I'm not a physician, but um, you're correct. You know, we were just talking about that a little bit back before uh, we came online here that everybody has a unique um, interaction with this new technology, which we call modified RNA, um, whether it's through shedding, which we do believe is a real thing. If you listen to some of the lectures from Frontline Critical Care Alliance uh, physicians, um, they've been doing some, um, you know, clinical assessments of that, where, for example, I'll have a husband-wife team come in. The husband got vaccinated, the wife did not. But the wife is having some issues. Um, she might be having a rash or she might be having, you know, hyperinflation of her allergy symptoms spurred on by mast cells. Um, and, you know, so there is some premise of thought that people can be affected by this transference of um, theoretically genetic information. So we would treat somebody like that with preventative and prophylactic strategies. Um, some call it a detox, but I would call that a little bit more preventative. And we use things like the natokinase, uh, curcumin and bromelain that Dr. Peter McCullough talks about to really help eat away at any spike protein, amyloid-like um, proteins and fibrin, which are the byproducts of that modified RNA instructions. Um, and we might use something like ivermectin in a lady or hydroxychloroquine um, of that nature. But then we have people who have actually taken the shots. Um, and, you know, we have research that shows that the modified RNA now stays in our blood system up to six months. Um, it can spike one or excuse me, S1 uh, subunit of the spike protein can stay in our white blood cells, maybe up to 15 months. What research has shown us lymph nodes, two months. Um, so we know that there's there's definitely evidence that this modified RNA technology does not go away in two weeks time frame like it was supposed to. So how do we detox that? Uh, the science is not perfect yet, but the strategies are there. Um, so we use repurposed pharmacological drugs, like I had mentioned, hydroxychloroquine, ivermectin. Um, we use, again, the nanokinase curcumin and bromelain to target any byproducts from these shots. But what we've also been doing over here is we've been using some peptide therapies to kind of help with any symptoms that have manifested from the continued persistence of that genetic information in your body. Um, for example, we use oxytocin which is a peptide. Um, it's a spray that we can do up your nose or give it to you sublingually. Um, it can really help people that have ringing in the ears, tinnitus. Um, it can help people uh, who have had you know, anxiety um, from just taking the shot. Um, it's very good for um, social bonding. Uh, it's very good for insomnia. Um, so we're using some unique things to target symptoms. And then we also use some uh, repurposed drugs that have far more proven clinical efficacy and safety profiles um, for over the years, like ladosinotraxone, uh, to help mitigate effects that we know can now be common from these modified RNA shots, you know, six months, one year, two years, three years out from actually taking um, the injection itself. Wow. Wow. So uh, tell me a little bit about how did you guys arrive or, or, or the people you work with with these detox protocols? Why should yeah. the viewer trust these detox protocols? I mean, they've heard, you know, obviously people are quite sure. cynical now. They've heard all sorts of things. What it is about what is it about these detox protocols that makes them so yeah. special? 
Well, a few things. One, um, so, you know, a lot of the research that's gone into us, if I'm talking about things like the natokinase, the curcumin, the bromelain, it came from Dr. Peter McCullough, um, and it came from Frontline Critical Care Alliance physicians. These physicians are some of the most published physicians in the literature and research world in the U.S. Um, they are physicians who have developed protocols before that have been trusted tried and true. And they were the voices that were correct in the treatment of acute COVID. So when I'm asking myself, let's just say as an American public citizen, who am I going to trust to lead and guide me down the road of health into wisdom and into integrative and innovative solutions? I'm going to look at the body of work that is, stands behind these individuals and those individuals with FLCCC and Dr. Peter McCullough, et cetera, um, the wellness company, for example, um, they are the ones that really can be certified um, and who I as a clinician do believe in and do value their pedigree um, and their mantras and their um, protocols that they have since developed. So, you know, I'm not in the research seat of the lab. I'm not taking blood out and plating it on a slide, um, but I'm someone who's a steward of information and I'm doing a lot of continual research and trying to harvest the latest data from different clinicians of whom I believe and trust. Um, you know, there's some work out by a Dr. Anna. I'm going to kind of butcher her name. It's M-I-C, I believe, H-E-L-A-A. Um, I have to double check on that. She's in Washington, but she's been doing a lot of research on how to degrade these, uh, you know, like hydro gel type clots that we see in some people um, post shot or even post infection. And so I follow work from different providers um, in different respective spheres who have unique approaches, but that have been vetted and backed by um, their integrity um, and then the quality of their work over years. And so we start there. And then second, we look at the medications that we're using or repurposed pharmacological drugs like low-dose naltrexone, ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine. We have a lot of data on these drugs and we've used them for a lot of different um, purposes over 50 plus years. I mean, ivermectin itself, we all know this, but uh, or maybe some of us don't, but you know, it won the Nobel Prize <laughs> for its efficacy in curing river blindness and its safety behind it. I mean, ivermectin in some ways is safer than Tylenol. So I, I, I hang my hat on things like that, that have been trusted true and proven over the years of time, not something like Paxlovid, which just came out and was repurposed and is, you know, the sexy new drug on the block um, that was actually um, antiviral created for HIV. Um, so to answer your question in a little bit of a roundabout way, uh, that's mm -hmm. how I make make my algorithms, um, decide on courses of treatments and uh, place mm -hmm. my trust back into things that Honestly, the, you know, the, the fabric of medicine is built on trust. And that's a little, that's been a little shaky over these last three years because of what's happened with COVID. So I mean, what, what you're saying, I mean, sounds very logical. You know, there are a couple of questions yeah. come to mind. Is there mm -hmm. a lot of people ask me that have been vexed? Is it possible? Sure. And, you know, we hear all sorts of things uh, from, you know, just feeling weak and tired to memory loss to right. actual myocarditis and, you know, mm -hmm. whole, bunch of things. Is it possible for people to get back to normal using these pro detox protocols? Yeah, Meaning normal like before. Yeah. Sure. So clinically, yes, I have experienced people get back to their baseline. For example, people saying like I had, a, you know, an individual who could not get up off the couch for more than 15 minutes a day. Um, and within our 90 day program, we had gotten him up to riding a bike four to five times a week for 40 miles. That's that's a much better quality of life than being on the couch. Right. Mm -hmm. However, do we have the information of that all clear signal um, in the genetic space, you know, in the hematological world or in the immune system data? base as to 
when does the problem go away, right? Or when does the modified RNA instruction shut off? No, we don't have that signal. We don't have that certainty right now. So clinically, yes, I can help you get better, but do I have the uh, data point that says, okay, red light, green light, um, shot turns on, shot turns off? I don't. So it's there's a two prong, I think, to that answer or answer to that question. Um, yes, clinically, I've helped people get well. I've gotten people's taste and smell back who um, have not had it for two years, which is a huge quality of life thing. Um, you know, I've helped people who've been dizzy persistently for a year or have chronic migraines to the point that they can no longer go to work and are in disability. We've been able to help them have either less frequent migraines and we've been able to help them not be dizzy anymore at all. Um, but again, do I have that all clear signal in the background? Not yet. Um, so I have to tailor their therapies kind of to clinically guess how much what's the least effective or the minimum effective dose of things and frequency of things that I can give to you to maintain a quality of life um, until I get that all clear signal um, from research land or uh, you know the powers that be that can speak to this more adequately than I. You know, let me ask you, like what you're saying was very logical in terms of mm -hmm. these detox protocols. You're saying, okay, we're yeah. going to the most published doctors, we're going to the most right. experienced doctors about all this stuff, right. but yet, when the, this whole thing started, it seemed as mm -hmm. though those doctors were being muted. I mean, Peter McCullough, I remember meeting him very early on, frankly, yes. in a dark room where there was like 20 people there. Uh, right. It felt like literally the underground operation against right. Nazi Germany in 1942. That's mm -hmm. what it felt like. We're like hiding yeah. out and we're scared, you know. Uh, yeah. Now he's become... Uh, internationally respected, one of the most respected right. in the, uh, doctors out there. Like, how did that not happen? The most logical thing not happen three, three and a half yeah. years ago. That's a good question. You know, um, I can only speak to my experience being in the hospitalist community. I received my instructions and my orders from the infectious disease team and from the administration. Um, and then being a physician assistant, I am subjected to some degree underneath the leadership of a physician, right? Um, so my initial data came from those respective partners. Um, but then what happened was my, my ability to observe clinically um, as I'm doing process procedure and protocols um, intersected and um, you know skizzed, <laughs> if that's even a word, um, created a, 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 a dichotomy between what I was being told and what I was seeing. And then the things that we were using that weren't working appropriately uh, to treat commonly known problems. And so my red flags went up and that caused me personally as a clinician to start looking for different answers. And that's how I found people like Dr. McCullough. That's how I found the FLCCC, um, you know, and others uh, that have stepped into this new frontier of medicine where we in this post-COVID era. Um, am I answering your question correctly? I'm tracking a little off, I think. But, um, you yeah. know, how do we, what, did, what was your original question? I just want to make sure I get back to the heart of well, the Well, how did, how, did, how, did, how did, like, all mm -hmm. the logic of, uh, you know, Maybe. being going after the best doctors, yeah. getting the best researchers versus, I mean, sure. frankly, some, like, stooge that was paid to lie. That's what it <laughs> seems like at right. this point. Why, why did right. we go down this road? Why did so many doctors allow it to happen? Professors, mm -hmm. I mean, intellectuals. It just seemed like mm -hmm. a whole breakdown of yeah. the entire community well there's a premise of trust within the community you know we trust that the powers that be the cdc the hhs you know whatever um uh 
certifying board of credentialing you're underneath that they've done their due diligence and they've done their, re their research or their homework and they've certified it all. You know, um, when you're in the hospital setting, for example, it's myself and a physician in this LTAC setting that I was formerly at, you know, we have 24, 23 beds and it's just the two of us. Um, and half of those are critical care ICU patients with vents or drips, things that you um, are very time critical um, and are very, um, you know, detail oriented and uh, honestly critical thinking um, relying upon. And so mm -hmm. if you're, you're seeing that breadth and depth of patients and then you throw on a pandemic and, um, you know, the onslaught of uh, admissions that's coming in and such that nature, to be frank, we didn't have time um, to maybe do our own homework as we should have been though. Um, but but at it, was, the beginning, it, was, it was almost, it was almost like a blitzkrieg type sneak attack kind of, where yeah. like, whoa, what's mm -hmm. going on? Yeah. Right. What's going on? Who knows what? Where do I so in that initial phase, my my trust is going to go directly to okay, the infectious disease doctor. He did, you know, the, the residency, he's done the research component, um, he's evaluating the literature, he's attending the conferences or the you know, voice calls. Um, so initially that's where I'm gonna go to. But as again, as things started to roll out, and for example, I would have patients come in who had been on, um, been given sarlumab and remdesivir, um, which is an interleukin-6 inhibitor. So it calms down the inflammation from your, your immune response. Um, and then remdesivir, as we all know, antiviral. It did not do well, <laughs> um, neither in COVID or the Ebola trials. But I would see those patients roll in my door and be vented um, and innovated and need three weeks to three months of recovery and therapy um, or expire. And then I would see that, you know, maybe an 85 year old lady who had heart failure or, um, you know, kidney disease um, or diabetes and the, the um, aggregate of her conditions uh, did not allow her to receive the remdesivir or the sarlumab. Um, and she would be on high flow nasal cannula, 40, 50 liters of oxygen, but she'd do fine and she would wean off of it in three weeks. And so I started assessing that and saying, hey, Either COVID is really big, bad, scary, or we're missing the mark and maybe our drugs are causing some side effects. Um, so just by the powers of observation, I started disag not disagreeing, but maybe standing back and asking new questions. Um, and then reading the CAT scans of people who were vented, because we oftentimes got a few of those during their course. Um, even the radiologist started sparking that type of curiosity, because as I was reading it, you could say that's fluid, and you could say that that looks like inflammation, or you could say that looks like scar tissue or connective tissue disease disorder or some autoimmune process that's happening, which can be a side effect from some of these drugs. And so the radiologists were documenting that at the same time that I was starting to think it and go through these materials myself. Um, and so that kind of started the oh, the peeling back of the curtain and the um, you know initial onslaught that I had in curiosity as to are we on the right track? Um, because mm -hmm. right now I'm just receiving orders and I'm trusting you know who's gone before me or who has the pedigree to validate that. Um, but me as a clinician in the seat actually treating this patient right here is seeing some things repetitively that seem to be amiss. Um, and so that's what really kind of started my skew into uh, a different a different way in a different, um, you know, not following the masses, I guess I should say <laughs> at that totally time. Cool. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about your journey through all of this. I mean, obviously yeah. when this first started, you weren't really aware what we love. None of us were really aware that we were no. all being lied yeah. to. 
Uh, other right. than, I mean, two enlightened ones. I don't know. I mean, I think Dr. McCullough, it's like, you know, got a yeah. message from God or something. But, you know, <laughs> we didn't we didn't yeah. know what was going on. So what, tell us right. about, that, about that journey. Yeah. You know, we were um, in the beginning initially, I was buying the N95 masks from the supplier who drove in from Arkansas down in the parking lot of the hospital field. You know, none of us were ready in that sense. Um, mm -hmm. But to your to your question, you know, part of my evolution began with just the clinical observation. Um, but then, you know, the other part of it was my own personal experience with COVID. I did not realize how um, ill-equipped the outpatient medicine sector was in treating it and how restricted they were to some degree um, in being able to be adept with therapies to handle it. And honestly, the primary cares were, you know, calling you up and saying, hey, when your cough is gone, then you can come see me, which I mean, that's just so twisted. <laughs> um, yeah. I got that direct answer myself. And then honestly, my personal experience was that I was restricted from getting the monoclonal antibodies because direct quote, I was too healthy. And at that time they were rationing them, you know, for people who needed them more than I, but since when do we do that in, in the world of medicine, we don't restrict treatment from the healthy. And um, so a lot of things in that unique experience that I had as well, um, further opened up that gate to, for me to see, of course we have a hospital crisis. Nothing's being done in the outpatient sector appropriately to treat this. Um, so that was another big stepping point for me. And I actually wrote to a lot of legislators at that time because my blood pressure was starting to rise. Um, and, you know, I was technically a clinician. I had political connections. You know, I had influence. I had, you know, I had the resources and funding. I had health insurance, everything that I should have to be able to get treated. And yet I could not. Um, and so I ended up having a bad COVID case. Um, and by the grace of God, you know, it only took me three months to get over, but still it, it opened my eyes. And then I guess the ultimate story would be, um, as these shots rolled out, I started noticing uh, people coming into the hospital with clinical symptoms and syndromes of, or clusters of things that just didn't make sense, irrespective. They were irrespective to their age, their comorbidities, um, and then their general presentations and traditional medical therapies were not working to mitigate the symptoms as we pre you know, previously knew. And so I had one patient who was you know, mid eighties and her family's authorized me to tell the story, but um, she went into acute renal failure and needed hemodialysis, which is the filtration of your blood system uh, when your kidneys fail. And then she uh, went acutely psychotic, so she didn't know her name. She wasn't able to feed herself. She was not able to participate in physical therapy and daily care um, of living type activities. And, you know, the hospitalist workup before I got her said for a month, we don't know what it is. We looked at every infection under the sun. We looked at every, um, you know, malignancy type of possibility. We've checked her kidneys out. We don't know why they failed. So, she has Alzheimer's disease. She just all of a sudden developed it out of the blue and it's been really progressive. And, you know, she starved herself and that's why her kidneys failed. And <laughs> nothing in that story is natural or progressive. Um, and so wait, wait, when who, I got who, her- Who said this story? Who said this story? Well, this, this is an is actual what, doctor claiming? Yes. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yes. Well, and they're trying, to, they're, trying to, they're trying to sell this fiction to people that are obviously right. professionals and experts. Wow. Right. Yeah. And so this was about, you know, a, maybe a year into the shots having rolled out. And so I get her and, um, you know, I had at this point started inserting the shots as a part of a differential diagnosis. Meaning when I get you and you have shortness of breath, am I, do you have a blood clot in your lung? You know, do you have asthma? Do you have pneumonia? I'm thinking of all the things that it could be. I started putting the shot as one of those things in there. And so when I came to her, I continued her workup, but I asked her family, I said, did she have a shot? 
And yes, she had had four messenger RNA shots, which at that time was all you could get. It was, you know, pretty much up to date. Um, and three days prior to the onset of all of her symptoms, she had gotten a Pfizer shot. And so I said, hold on, you know, we've got to consider that as a part of her story. And so at that time, I was FLCCC, more uh, well-learned, um, you know, was aware of Dr. McCullough. I hadn't really used ivermectin yet um, in my clinical practice at all, but I knew that they were doing it to treat vaccine syndromes and detox pathways. And so I went before the medical, uh, excuse me, the physician that I work with, um, and I went before the nephrology team, infectious disease team, and the pharmacy. And I said, hey, we have no other options kind of here can we Hail Mary it? You know, I'm presenting it in that way, but really thinking to myself that this is going to work. I hope it works. <laughs> um, you know, but everybody else was like, we don't know what to do. Literally, the, they told her family to drop her will because they, she had no quality of life. At this time, she had put a peg, they had put a peg tube in her to feed her because she could not feed herself. She wasn't getting up out of bed and she was connected to a dialysis machine that would run every other day. Um, and so I gave her ivermectin and within about 12 hours, she started kind of coming to Within 24 hours, 36 hours, she knew her name. She was conversing with her husband again. Uh, within three days, she was able to eat by mouth. Um, and she was able to get up and participate with physical therapy. I mean, it was a drastic, radical response. Um, her kidneys did not fully recover. Um, but she came back to herself about 85 90% just in the three days of therapy. And we continued the therapy on for about a month, month and a half before she had to leave our facility and go elsewhere. But that wow. was the cornerstone case for me where I said something's wrong and we need to get people well. If this is happening to her, it's happening to other people too. Um, and at that time I had started noticing that the uh, there was an uptick in cancer um, coming into my facility. Um, and so I just started, honestly took a, <laughs> a post-it note and I started writing people's names and I started writing, you know, shots that they had got um, just to see, you know, if there was any similarities between them and a lot of the things that I was seeing were neurological issues, uh, was re-diagnosed cancer or new onset of cancer, um, and then autoimmune issues, uh, just from my own clinical observation. But after that cornerstone case, um, there were some management changes, and my position was just reshuffled around, and um, the position of retention that I was offered was just not the best fit I found for myself, so I decided to resign. Um, and then that's when I came on to meeting Dr. Meehan, and he had the same vision and mission um, as I did stirring kind of in, in my, my, my heart. Um, and so we decided to create something and do something about it because we realized that there was a space that was not being acknowledged in a patient population that was not being properly treated at the root of its cause. Wow. Wow. Uh, th this is amazing, uh, Rochelle. Is there anything we didn't touch upon that uh, we should be talking about? Thank you. Um, I think, you know, just knowing that there are answers out there, there is hope. Um, there truly, truly is. And it's the simplest of things. And it's not the things that will break your bank. Um, you know, and there are innovative things. You know, there's a uh, there's stuff like stellar ganglion blocks that people are trialing now to help uh, restore taste and smell. We have um, a provider here in town who's willing to do those as a therapy and intervention and insurance is covering it, too, which is neat to see. 
Um, but basically, you know, Dr. Meehan and I are licensed in 35 states to provide practice care um, and prescribe and treat. And so we're really trying to get a hold of people who think they might have been affected either by the infection or the injection long term, because we know there's hope for you. Um, and I think these are things that your primary care could know how to do or that your hospitalist team could be well versed in. It's just that they aren't right now. Um, and part of that's for many different reasons. Uh, so we want to acknowledge that and just say that we have a space for you and we want to try and get you well. Wow. Wow. This is amazing, Rochelle. Thank you so much for coming Thank on to you. the Blood Money podcast. And uh, for the viewers out there, make sure you check out americahappens.com. Make sure you go there and subscribe. Give us your email address because with all this censorship, we don't know what's going to happen. And uh, we'd yeah. love to have your contact info to keep you in touch with amazing episodes such as this one. Thank you so much. And I will see you on the next episode of Blood Money. Blood Money.